Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, the creators of Belgian lockdown sports show the Container Cup. Tell us how they set about devising a competition format shot inside an old shipping container, transported to athletes' homes with remakes already on the cards in the US and France. But first... When the production lockdown hit the UK as the coronavirus pandemic gripped the world, BBC Director of Drama Piers Wenger sought a way to keep drama on screen. His solution was a remake of Alan Bennett's iconic monologue series Talking Heads, which had previously been filmed in 1988 and 1998. The updated version features 10 of the original 12 scripts, plus two new stories with a cast including Jodie Comer, Sarah Lancashire and Kristen Scott Thomas. While recording drama featuring just a single actor in each episode might seem the best solution to production under strict COVID-19 guidelines, executive producer Kevin Loder and production designer Simon Bowles told Michael Pickard how they managed it in just 10 weeks, utilising existing sets from the empty EastEnders studios and rehearsing through video calls. I know this was filmed, you know, under lockdown conditions and it seems the perfect show for lockdown, but was it conceived for this period or were you planning this, you know, much longer in advance? No, it was was totally conceived for this period. So, I mean, to give credit where it's due, it was Piers Wenger, who's the, you know, head of drama at the BBC, and said, look, you know, trying to think what drama we can make during the lockdown. And, um, you know, the Alan Bennett monologues spring to mind as kind of classics of the genre of things you could do with one actor at a time. Um, what do you think? You know, do you think it's A, possible? Do you think Alan would go for it? And do you think you could find a way to do it quickly? And I think on that very first call that we had with Piers, you know, he was saying we'd love to get them on in June. And I mean, you know, this was the last weekend in March, I think. It seemed an impossible idea, really. But by the weekend, I think we had, yeah, we certainly, we certainly went into the weekend, you know, thinking, yes, they could be done and they could be done at Elstree. I mean, that was the key, really. And, and Simon can talk a bit about this in a minute. But, you know, the, the big problem, as Simon and I know, because we're, you know, the show we were working on where we were in the middle of a large construction project uh, at Leaveston Studios had to stand down because they shut the studios. And one of the things that's been very impossible to do in lockdown is build sets. So the issue really was, where the hell will we shoot them? We're not going to be going to people's houses. And then, obviously, Pierce said, look, EastEnders is off the air. I'm sure I can get, you know, BBC Studios and Elstree to, to kind of put the studios at your disposal. So then the idea became to go and try and shoot it on standing sets at Elstree. So without that, we probably would have had to give up straight away. So that was an important first brick. And then it was just about, could we persuade, you know, 12 actors to, to do it and only have a couple of weeks prep, really? From the minute they were mostly called, they had... Well, the the people who filmed first probably had four weeks, literally four weeks, to rehearse and learn it. And, you know, some of these monologues are over 40 minutes, so it's quite a learn. Just put into context, you know, the monologues themselves. I mean, obviously, people might know them from, you know, when they've been done um, previously. But, I mean, as someone in the business, I mean, how do you see these monologues and, and what kind of legacy do they have that means that Piers wanted to do them again now for a modern audience? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we don't tend to think television scripts are, you know, achieve classic status in the way that a theatre script might. But I think actually these do have claim for that. Um, and because they're such a pure form of dramatic monologue, you know, they, they are capable of re-performance and reinterpretation, you know, by a new generation. And I suppose 
you know, one of the interesting things about monologues is they have been performed on stage as well as on, on screen, although they were written for the BBC and for the screen originally. They have had a life on the stage as well in various incarnations. So they do feel to me like they've become kind of classic pieces of, of Alan Bennett text. And they've been studied at O&A level as well. So, you know, they, I, think, I think they have claim to classic status. And one of the consequences of that was that when we were talking to Piers about it, we did point out to him that if Alan agreed to let them be done, you know, we wouldn't be trying to negotiate with him to get them all down to a half hour slot or something like that. You know, they had to be done word for word as classic text, just as you would with a Harold Pinter play or a Samuel Beckett play and, uh, and that they would come in at very odd lengths and be a scheduling nightmare. And, and to be fair, Piers and, and Charlotte were brilliant about that. Just said, yeah, that's great. We'll, we'll find a way of transmitting them. Don't worry. So, and I think also there was a, a sense that they, you know, it was the very early week of the lockdown. Everybody was sitting in their living room. You know, occasionally they were doing this kind of thing on FaceTime with relatives if they were tech savvy enough and had the equipment. But there was a whole sense of, you know, we were all on our own and talking to people through screens or seeing people talking about their situation through screens a bit. It suddenly seemed a rather resonant thing to be doing to have, you know, these very, very concentrated, intimate, um, texts where an actor portrays a character who's sort of making a confession to you of some kind, you know, or at least, you know, trying to describe um, a, a little window in their lives at that moment. And, and Simon, I mean, how much notice then did you get of, you know, coming on board the project and, and what were your initial concerns is, is maybe the right word? Or, uh, you know, <laughs> where did you start? As Kevin says, we were working on Avenue 5 and it just just ground to a halt, um, obviously because of the COVID uh, uh, virus, and uh, and it was like a like a day and a half in, and I was like, oh, this is going to be so lovely. I'm going to see my family. I'm going to be like, <laughs> I mean, this homeschooling sounds fun and easy. I'll be doing that with the children. It's going to be fantastic. And then, uh, um, but then Kevin phoned me. Got this fantastic idea. <laughs> We're going to make something. We're going to shoot something. And you got four weeks prep. But it's like it's just 12 monologues you know so we did this call and uh, um yes the, the idea of, of using bbc elstree founding sets came up and which was brilliant because i was thinking like oh, i've always wanted to go around the the eastenders set i've worked so many times at the the movie studio at elstree and because the, they're separate from the the eastenders set it's on two sides of the town um and you can see when you drive through the town you can see the the the, the train bridge the uh, over albert square so i've always wanted to go and have a look so so yeah so straight after that call the first call with, um, with producers and everybody, uh, and Nicholas and um, and Kevin, we uh, yeah, so I jumped in my car and drove over there. I got special dispensation as a as a something I'm a key worker and had to walk around all the sets. And it's like, oh my word, there's dots. Dot's living room and there's the Queen Vic and it was absolutely amazing. But it was just myself and um, an art director, um, India Smith. So we went around together. And she showed me around all the sets. And it was interesting because that was, I realized that that might be the only time I go. So in, in prep anyway. So I had to make a decision as to which set was going to work for which monologue. And bearing in mind, I'd only just read the script. So I had to kind of like really absorb everything, all the characters and, and the emotions behind each piece and the blocking and what is kind of physically needed for each set. Um, so I walked around and kind of like, okay, so what, which, who lives in this house? Slater's house. Okay, so let's use this for this scene and, um, and kind of found a good bedroom in one set and then a good living room in another and a good kitchen. So, so we ended up choosing, I think it was 34 different rooms within the whole standing set world of, of EastEnders and, and yeah, and, and chose it from there. 
that then we had to kind of like dress these sets to be kind of character specific for our um, for each of our scenes, and also yeah, to kind of make sure that they they work well. Um, there was a concern that you know it's like are we going to recognise the sets as being uh, the EastEnders? Nick was very worried about that, Simon. But I remember you were very kind of no, we've got to celebrate that it's on the EastEnders set. You know, it's two great traditions of English storytelling coming together. <laughs> That's it. It's a wonderful fusion of these two worlds that there was. That, that, and I was saying, like, be, hopefully the EastEnders um, viewers will watch these um, episodes, these monologues, to, to spot, you know, and actually spot who's in, in, which, in which house, you know, within, within the EastEnders world, which I thought was rather, rather fabulous and something we shouldn't shy away from. But even actually went down to the props as well, because the, cause we couldn't go to prop houses and hire all the props and dressing and things. I had to use what was there. So I was taking objects from one house in Albert Square, one of the interiors, and putting it in into a different one. And the, the, the props and art directing team were like, you can't do that. That's, that's Phil Mitchell's mug set or something that he always drinks from or something like that. And I'm putting it into Dot Cotton's house. And so everything, all the pictures, everything was moving around. So it was, it was an extraordinary experience just because of that, just to be able to kind of fuse these two, two worlds together to, to, to create one one environment for all these monologues. Yeah, the, the person in charge of continuity on EastEnders is going to have a nightmare when they uh, they start again, aren't they? So. <laughs> yeah, they will. Well, Absolutely. they have started again. They're, they're up and running now. And running. Um, I mean, I have to say, you know, and I'm sure Simon would agree, you know, we can't really praise the BBC L Street team enough because they immediately threw themselves into it, you know, and they were all, you know, they're used to churning out three or four hours of television drama a week so this didn't phase them as much as it might have phased some of us um, but they were exceptionally committed and, and really imaginative in finding solutions and you know the actual process of the filming obviously within social distancing and COVID guidelines was a pretty strange experience for everyone uh, but you know they they helped us particularly um, some of the production managers and line producers there really helped us find the solutions. I mean, I imagine, you know, with monologues, I mean, it's, it's in the title, isn't it, that uh, it's one person on camera and one actor in each monologue. So I guess as production now sort of starts to slowly ramp up back in the UK, I mean, can you tell us a bit more about how you worked physically and, and with well, how much crew you had on set at, at one they, time? I mean, they are one actor to, to, to one camera, that is true. But they are, as Simon said, you know, they're worth, there's probably an average of four or five sets per monologue. So they have a passage of time within them. Each of them comes up, sometimes in a different place, sometimes in the same place a bit later with a costume change. So they don't all take place in one moment. They take place, each of them, over a period of time. So it meant that probably uh, every monologue had five or six setups. And so we came up with a strategy, really, which was um, to not have any physical dealings with the actor until the day of shooting. So all the rehearsals were done via Zoom. All the makeup consultations were done via Zoom. So Naomi Dunn, our makeup designer, basically, you know, bought a, a makeup kit for each character, had it sent to their house, and then did Zoom tutorials. Chris and Scott Thomas had to fit her own wig. You know, it was quite complicated. And then the day before the shooting, there was a pre-light and dressing day. So each, each monologue set were properly dressed with Simon working with India and the EastEnders team. And then, you know, the actor would come in on the day of the shoot and have one day to shoot their monologue. And, and that was it, really. And 
they'd have they probably sometimes they saw some of their costumes for the first time on that day. Some had been sent to their houses by uh, Jacqueline, the costume designer had sort of ordered things from eBay and they would turn up and sometimes they'd be sent away again. But you know, it was, a, it was an odd and rather intense moment, those kind of three weeks before we shot, because there was loads going on behind the scenes, but it was all happening kind of bilaterally of, you know, two people talking on Zoom about makeup or a director and an actor rehearsing on Zoom or, Simon working with the design team at Elstree on Zoom. So you didn't really ever have a sense of what was going on, but you just knew it was all going on everywhere um, until the actual day of the shoot. Yes, it was extraordinary working with, as Kevin says, with all these things going on in the background, because I, um, I was having to, to kind of move, kind of dress the set, but I couldn't be there. So um, they propped up an iPad on the, on the mantelpiece of each set or, or, or somewhere that they could prop me up. So I, I had very long, kind of many hours worth of sitting here, just saying, that sofa, yeah, let's try that bit further left, bit further left, yeah, okay. And then let's, let, let's turn that around. Those curtains, they don't work. Let's, what other curtains have we got? So long, long conversations about it. But then also with social distancing, you know, if there was a dining chair, that could be moved easily because one person can move it. If it was a long settee, that's fine because two people could move it because there are more than two meters apart. But then it came to smaller objects like a heavy armchair or a piano or something where you'd need a couple of people around it who are too close. So we had to, we ended up having to kind of take away walls of the sets and bring forklift trucks in to come and pick up small but heavy items. And can you um, just tell us a bit about the casting process? Because, uh, you know, how, how did you go about that with, with actors? I guess out of work generally, but, you know, there's only a limited number of roles. And Originally, the Talking Heads were, were two groups of six. So they did six in 1988 and six ten years later. And two of the most celebrated of the original ones, um, one in each era, were the ones that Thora Heard did. Um, and in one of those ones, you know, she's in her 80s. And in, in, in the one that was done later, she's 99 and waiting for a telegram from the Queen. So there was a huge discussion about whether we could possibly invite a very senior actress to come and do those. And the BBC had a rule that nobody over 70 should be really allowed into Elstree or on set. So we had to kind of get rid of that idea quite quickly. And also, we were all terrified that one or more of the national treasures of actresses in in their later years would end up being infected by us. So we've got a bit scared about that as well. But luckily we had these two other monologues that Alan had written uh, more recently that that we could substitute. So although we've only done 10 of the originals, got two new ones. And we, we, we decided very on, very early on, that part of what we could do here would be not to take fees and to make a big donation to the NHS, which is not something the BBC have been part of, but it's something that the actors and directors and crew like Simon and myself have been part of. So really our pitch to the actors was, look, we know you're at home doing nothing. BBC want these monologues. They're brilliant texts. We're going to not take fees, but we're going to give a load of money to the NHS charities, uh, and you've got three weeks, and it'll all be over by, um, you know, it'll all be over by the end of May, or well, actually, it'll be over by the middle of May. So, um, how about it? And I think probably within three days we had it cast. And you know, some of them kind, of, you can imagine what the list is. A lot of them are, you know, most of them are uh, middle-aged women on the whole, not exclusively, but that's the sort of weighting of them. So that list kind of. It's pretty rich in the current acting community. And we were really, really lucky that probably our first choice for all of them said yes immediately. I mean, we were obviously keen to um, include 
you know, which they hadn't done the first time round, but to see which monologues could be adapted so that we could have, um, you know, some actors of colour involved. And um, so we, we got Lucy Masmati and uh, Roshenda Sandal to do two of them. And, you know, there were surprising ideas which Robert Stern, the casting director, had come up with, like Martin Freeman to do the one that Alan Bennett had done originally, which, you know, even Alan was really thrilled about that. And said, well, he just mustn't do it anything like I did it which indeed he doesn't. So, you know, it was, it was fun, the casting. And uh, actually, everybody said yes. Um, I think there was only one actress we approached who, who said, look, I'd love to, but I've got childcare issues and, you know, et cetera, and, and really couldn't see her way to doing it. But other than that, we got, a, we got a, a pretty instant yes from everyone. I mean, whether they went home and then kind of, you know, thought, what the hell have I just said yes to? I don't know. But they all held firm and they all turned up word perfect on the day, which, you know, is extraordinary, really. Is, is there a lot of pressure on the actors to bring something fresh to the monologue, seeing as they've been recorded before and, and obviously you want to make them different, I guess, but without changing the words, you know, Alan's words? I think, I mean, we didn't encourage anyone to watch the originals, but obviously I think nearly everybody was aware of the originals. So I'm sure if you think, oh my God, I do the one that Maggie Smith did, there's a little bit of pressure that comes with that. But I think, you know, people who know the originals, and there's a huge part of the audience who don't, will be totally persuaded, I think, by the interpretations on offer. I mean, they feel a little different to me now because I think they're written slightly in a, in a kind of um, non-specific recent past in a way. I mean, that's the odd thing about them. You know, Alan's, Alan's writing has its own sort of rhythm and its own music and it feels like, you know, the language of his parents on occasion and sometimes it feels like the language you'd hear on the bus, you know, and they're all loosely set around a kind of fictional leads, I suppose, but not in any particularly rigorous way. And Alan didn't want them to be pure Yorkshire, but they are all kind of set in a kind of version of, of Alan's Yorkshire, I suppose. And I think you know, they feel a little more contemporary. That's all I can say. I think, you know, like all drama, it reflects the period in which it's shot as much as the period in which it's set. And although these aren't very specific about when they're set, they now feel very contemporary. They all feel like they could have happened yesterday, really. Yes, that's something we tried to do through the dressing as well, because obviously the, the first six were shot in the 80s and yeah, and then the second lot were in the 90s. So 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 in the set dressing, yeah, so I did things like I added those kind of the old dial telephones and things and, and ashtrays and things. So rather than it being kind of overtly 80s or anything, we were trying to create a kind of a, a memory, like you, it's like a memory rather than a specific period, um, except for the two new ones. And then, then the we new ones, we relentlessly say these, these are right now, so um, you know they're very very contemporary I mean just what, what are some of the lessons maybe you've learned from working on this show that as we come out of lockdown and, and production starts up again that other crews might look to you and see or well, how did they do that what advice would you have for them well, zoom rehearsal probably has no future <laughs> that's one lesson <laughs> I don't think the directors or the actors enjoyed that very much as opposed yeah. to being in a room production meetings are more fun in cafes than they are on zoom <laughs> I think we'll all be working in the future with smaller crews and things may take a little longer than they did until you know the situation changes but it's also probably a lesson in how how quickly you can you know if you really have to find solutions we're very good in our industry at finding solutions so this was kind of you know this was a sort of turbocharged version of what we do anyway I think I think probably we'll all learn that you can work more quickly and lighter of foot than we thought 
and and that, that'll probably be good for everyone it's been amazing because we because we all went through this and and actually it's because we came out the other side of it i mean I, my agents my both my american agents and my uk agents said i'm the only production designer working on a drama that is being shot right now in the world in their opinion i'm sure there's somebody some sh- shooting somewhere it came out <laughs> because of that um once we finished everybody's like phoning us and emailing us saying so so how did you do it what did you do so there were a bunch of lessons that we learned and just really simple stuff and and one of the big lessons was having this taking our time and and doing the the rehearsal day the day before the shoot so that at the most basic everybody can like without the pressure of having to film everybody can say okay so I'll I'll stand here and hold the boom and and you stand over there so and then just kind of plan just how how we do that and actually take away whole chunks of scenery because we found that it's easier to, to to shoot on a kind of three wall set rather than trying to squeeze into a, 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 a fourth wall set and also you know, once we start filming you can't start moving scenery around so so we just had to kind of work with with three wall sets which is again is something that we're going on to avenue five back to that we're actually going to start building i'm designing sets now to be three wall sets um so that we can have a, a camera operator with two meters then a boom operator then two meters and a and a director so that so you can everybody can get in and out of a set having a way in and a way out out. So, so there's huge, huge numbers of. of um, I think of with, you know our experience on the design that says well, it'll definitely help production experience. I mean, the big mystery going forward is how you put six actors around a dinner table and, and within social distancing. I mean, those things still have not been resolved, and that's going to be the interesting thing now as we're all going through the protocols with the various kind of broadcasters and backers of our shows. And as Simon says, you know, we're back on Avenue 5 now, trying to work out how we can finish building our sets. And, you know, that's the opposite of um, the opposite of the dramatic monologue. You know, Avenue 5 is a big, boisterous comedy mashup, really. And, and a lot of it involves a lot of people in small spaces all shouting at each other. So, you know, that's going to be a, a challenge, how we maintain the atmosphere and the sort of comedy knockabout improvisational air of that with the guidelines that we'll be having to operate under. And, and just finally, I mean, what, why do you think Talking Heads sort of stands the test of time and, and why do you think or hope that this new audience will, will kind of enjoy the series? I think they're extraordinary pieces of writing and extraordinary performances that bring them to life. But honestly, the writing is exceptional. I think the more you look at them, the more intriguing they are. You know, they're, they're very dark, some of them, but they're about... You know, they're about really kind of, you know, the, the secrets that human beings are carrying, the, the, the restrictions on their lives, the struggles that people kind of operate under, you know, how difficult it is to, to function in the world sometimes. And because a lot of these characters do feel rather lonely and isolated, even within their marriages and their, and their family relationships sometimes, you know, they feel as, as though they speak to a world in which a lot of people are feeling lonely and isolated. So I think, you know, there'll be, lot, there'll be lots to ponder and lots to enjoy. Kevin Loder and Simon Bowles discussing the BBC's new version of Talking Heads, which airs from June the 23rd. Belgian production company Woostenvis conceived, pitched and produced lockdown sports show The Container Cup, filmed inside an old shipping container transported to athletes' homes after SBS-owned network VIA gave a green light in under an hour. Record ratings saw the series optioned in the US by Three Ball Productions and in France by Endemol Shine via distributor Primitives. 
the latter's head of sales and acquisitions, Siobhan Crawford, and the Container Cup creators, Hazel Plazier and Dirk van den Hoot, spoke with Clive Whittingham. I'm Siobhan Crawford, and I work for sales and acquisitions at Primitives, which is the Belgian distributor for um, most of our territory. Uh, I'm Hazel Plazier, and I'm head of content for the production company Woestijnbis, which is a Flemish television production company. My name is uh, Dirk van der Nauten. I also work for the Woestijnvis production company. I'm working on the research and development of new uh, programs of uh, our company. So guys, the reason we've come together today is because you, you uh, managed the impossible really, to, you know, creating, turning around uh, a, a new format in, in a very short period of time during lockdown. Can you start at the start and tell us about the origins of the project? I think the original idea was like um, of the opportunity to have uh, a lot of uh, athletes at home who were uh, um, annoying them, themselves. And uh, that's how the idea started. And that's when our creative team, Dirk and Steve, uh, started to develop a format which was made for uh, athletes at home and for uh, Corona times. So they were sitting at home without any competition. So the Olympics were cancelled, everything was uh, cancelled and it's during uh, uh, non-corona times. It's very difficult to, to have these athletes in a, in a television show because they are always on a, a training schedule, a diet. So uh, we took this opportunity and uh, yeah, we came, came up with the container uh, cup idea. So first of all, we thought of a competition in their house, around in the street, uh, that they didn't have to move. Was there a was there a sort of eureka moment when you when you came up with that idea? And and, and for people that haven't seen the show, can you kind of e- explain what it looks like and the, and the format of it? It looks like a, a, a real container uh, that that normally is on a ship uh, to somewhere. Inside, we have uh, seven activities. There is a treadmill, there is a, a bike, uh, we, we have monkey bars, uh, you can, there is a, what is it, a, a, a rowing machine, uh, a golf, not a real golf, of course, and a bench press. But I think uh, at first, so we have this container who was 12 and a half meters, and then we taped this on the floor, and then we fitted in all the uh, sports uh, materials to see what fitted in. Mm-hmm. And then we tried with some sports uh, experienced uh, athletes to see what was the most challenging and most diverse competition we could organize in this small space. So, and also uh, we, so we looked for the balance between uh, real duration sports and um, more like technical. technical. Yeah. So that it's not that it shouldn't be clear from the from the start who's gonna win. That's a that's it sounds like a lot of development in a very very short period of time. Can you how, can you tell tell us how you managed to to squeeze that all in? Actually, we had a, uh, we were lucky because we had uh, an empty container that we used for another uh, program in the backyard. So uh, we painted it. We painted it. <laughs> Uh, no, so we had the, like Hazel told you, uh, we had the measurements and then we moved on with, without being in the real container we, in, in the office here. We moved every equipment around until we, we had the, the right position. But at that time, the company was like uh, 
shut down. Lockdown. So everyone was free. So it was easy to have a, instantly a team and, have, and we start working on seven, every day, always with the, the, the safety distance, of course. One of the most uh, difficult things was to get the materials to decorate because at that time all shops are closed so as a, if you are not a had a building company you were not allowed to buy or to go to some uh, shops so we we did some illegal stuff yeah, i think black market <laughs> always always handy to have a shipping container kicking around in the car park as well that was, yes. that was a bit of a stroke yes. of now you know so um talk to me about the pitch to sps does it get, like we say very short period of time a matter of maybe three weeks between a pitch and getting it on air did they go for it straight away did you always know it was going to be sps and and how did it end up on air so quickly tell me about the pitch our company worked for two uh television broadcasters sbs uh and the public broadcaster we both have good relationship we have we have good relationship with both so that's uh, in this kind of trust they decided very very quickly to go for the for the pitch the times were also very difficult so everybody uh, was looking for the right format to give uh, the audiences in these days so i think they didn't think about it like more than yeah 15 minutes or an hour it was like really and in that the trust they have in our production company and the times were like decision makers because there wasn't even a deck like when we asked once they confirmed the commission to us and they said it's going on air within like two weeks of getting the green light or something we'd asked one of the people carol and the team we said is there a pitch deck so we can start organizing for international and they haven't even they hadn't even pitched off a deck like there wasn't that i think you'd done um didn't you you'd done a bit of taster tape hadn't you with one of the celebrities the former athlete the former that. athlete did it so we we filmed it uh, and then we showed it but it was not finished yet but at, at the time at that moment uh different the, the different channels were looking for instant new content yeah and most of the content was uh, about the corona people like we are doing now skyping and uh, zooming and uh, we were lucky that they saw that this was a, a new way to look to to deal with the the lockdown yeah. And the other opportunity was that like daily soaps in Belgium um, were uh, paused because of the uh, measures and um, the week the container cup started was the first week without daily soaps on both channels. So there was like this gap in programming, like people around eight were not having their daily soaps. Just so that's why SBS decided, okay, let's start on that Monday. So we can have some replacement for the for the daily soaps, and we uh, enjoyed that uh, that attention, of course. And and no live sport, obviously, and this this fits perfectly to, as a replacement yeah, for that. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, we broadcasted it on SBS uh, Channel Four, Vier, and we had we also have Play Sports, a special sports channel, which normally focuses on Belgian uh, football games. But obviously they, they weren't at the time, so they decided to uh, announce it on PlaySports as well. And they uh, also broadcasted it on YouTube, I think, and on the uh, site uh, Van Vier. And how is it? Um, how has it gone? What has the reception been like? And obviously, it was a quick turnaround. So, how have you refined it and, and changed it, or what would you change as you move forward with it? Because obviously, you know, you've got experience of 
of doing it now? I think the um, the most important thing was that we saw immediately that the the athletes that they were as compet competitive as in a, in a real game. They were not thinking, "Oh, I'm in a container and I'm on a treadmill." No, normally, I I run on a, a soccer field. Or no, they were there to win, and that was I think the the biggest plus of 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 that game. It was not just people on a treadmill no the athletes they wanted to be the best one on the treadmill or on the monkey bars and there was the disappointment uh, like after a real game uh, we, we need to to focus on that and to make uh, to make that the athletes come to win and for the moment we have uh, we, we keep getting uh, calls or mails or uh, from athletes that want to to join and want to participate and they they think oh it's a pity that i didn't participate because i i could beat the other one yeah, so it's, it's really inviting like yeah. we have like this um uh, crossfitters from all over, over belgium who are saying let me in let me in i can do better than uh, our favorite footballer so yeah. it's really it's really challenging for the viewers as well to see so, as part of this show's rapid, uh, rapid sort of spring to life in a, in a matter of weeks, it's also been optioned uh, as well in the US. I don't know if, if Siobhan, you wanted to, to tell us a, a little bit about uh, the, uh, the company that's picked it up and, and how that all came about. Well, we had two options placed. We had the deal in the US with Three Ball, and then we had a deal with Endemol Shine in France. Um, there was quite a lot of interest in France. Actually, quite a few offers came in, and the same with the US. It was pretty much a bidding game, where um, NBC had put out a, a call for programming, as we knew as a big broadcast. That's one place. Um, but generally, a lot of people were sort of deficient in their own programming. And like Hazel and Dirk had said, there's too much Zoom calling was one of the big problems. There was um, need to be an alternative, which is great, and it's and it's good news. Of course, we've got the US and the and then France. The thing is now is when the Corona rules are changing, what happens and how does it impact the Container Cup? And I think we were very fortunate with Belgium on the timing to get it out when we did, when everyone was still pretty locked down, and it could utilise a really good time. Now we've just come out the other side where people are allowed out. And there's this big push with governments to restart football or, or different sporting events. How does the container now work in the new world? Um, so I think that's something that we have to work with with the team on in terms of development to show people what it could look like. Do you have people now gathering around it? I mean, it could be that it's a special event, but actually it worked so well as a daily. I mean, we were talking about ratings, which were 21 to, to nearly 30 percent share on a daily basis. I mean, these are big numbers for SBS and, and even established shows that sit in the same um, time slot areas are not achieving this so 500,000 viewers not consolidated on four different platforms as well that your your simultaneous transmission I mean these are large numbers for a sports program that was just came up in a month and on also a tiny really tiny budget if you think about it this container this production was um under 30,000 an episode these are they're big things that should be attractive internationally but we just have to figure out what we do in terms of changing it to the new world structure. Siobhan Crawford, Hazel Plazier and Dirk van den Oot. That's all for this episode. Remember, if you'd like to share your story of coping with COVID-19 with the international TV industry, email us using the address press at c21media.net. 
There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. 